Well, good morning. <clears throat> As you can tell, my voice is not normal. Uh, so uh, I realize uh, Communication 101, you're not supposed to chew like cough drop while you speak, but I'm going to have a cough drop in my mouth this morning. I uh, hope you're okay with that because it's better than me hacking in the microphone most of the time. And I may sip some water while I'm at it. But I'm glad you're here. Uh, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, and uh, however you come into this place this morning, I hope you know you're welcome, uh, that we want you to feel welcome and a part of our community. As you heard, there's a lot of, a lot of things going on this summer uh, to participate in, our summer electives, our day of service, social gatherings, women gatherings. I hope you'll find opportunities to connect further. If you are a first-time guest or just recently started attending, Timothy and I would love to connect with you. So please, if we haven't met you, say hello after the service. Uh, we're, we're out uh, by the door. Uh, stop by and, and introduce yourself. We'd love to, to know you. Uh, this morning, we are starting a new sermon series in the New Testament letter of 1 John. Uh, over the past few months, since January, uh, our preaching series have felt a little bit more topical. Uh, as in January, we preached through the Ten Commandments, and then recently finishing up a series called Barriers to Belief, two series that I thoroughly enjoyed and pray will remain fruitful in our lives as a congregation. More often than not, though, we like to preach through books of the Bible, portions of the Scripture as a way of allowing God to use His Word to shape and to mold us, to come under his word rather than to have the temptation as a preacher to use his word to push our own agenda. Uh, I also think reading the Bible and, stu and studying it, um, books at a time helps us learn how to read the Bible as a whole as a congregation and that's important to us here. So I'm excited that we're going to be in 1 John for this summer. And before we jump in, I want you to picture something with me. I want you to imagine a world where people don't believe in absolute truth where even Christians question absolute truth and everything's relative, where theologians are uncertain about Jesus and where new spiritualities are all around and mixed together, where the idea of salvation coming through Christ and Christ alone feels outdated, backwards, narrow, and ignorant. Well, what world do you think I'm describing? Many of you might say today, and yes, that's true. But what I really had in mind is the day of the Apostle John, the author of 1 John. John is writing to Christians in Asia Minor that were living in just as uncertain and just as changing of times as you and I are living in. And in this letter, John is writing to say, look, I, I know that you are unsettled in your confidence in the gospel of Jesus. You're unsettled because of this ever-changing world, the plethora of truth claims that are being made, the plethora of truth denials that are being made. I know it's unsettling when you hear people say things that are different about Jesus than I taught you. I know you're unsettled when people say there are other ways to a true knowledge of God rather than through faith in Jesus. I know you're unsettled when people are making different claims about Jesus, and therefore I'm writing to give you confidence. You see, we see John's point summed up at the very end of this letter in chapter 5, verse 13, when he writes this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John is writing to give assurance, certainty, primarily to Christians who are struggling and wavering in their confidence in the gospel in the midst of an opposing world. Now John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
He's the disciple that laid his head on the breast of Jesus. He's the author of the Gospel of John. He's the author of First, Second, and Third John, these epistles. And he's the author of the last book of the Bible, Revelation. At the point of writing this, John is an old man. He is uh, the only apostle that died a natural death. All the other apostles were, were martyred and executed. The tone of this letter is extremely pastoral and fatherly. You'll see throughout, he repeats the phrase, little children, little children. John is deeply concerned, like a father for his child or a grandfather for his grandchildren, that they will know for certain that they are Christians and that they might be secured in the life that they have in Christ. The two things that I often end my day with my two boys when I'm telling them goodnight are these two things. I'll say, hey, buddy, you know dad loves you, don't you? And they'll, yeah. And then I'll say, buddy, you know God loves you, don't you? Yeah. You know why I do that? I do that because I want them to be secure. I want them to be certain and sure of my love as a dad unto them and of God's love unto them. This whole letter is a letter so that we might be secured and certain of God's love to us and of his salvation that we might know. So if you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time as we do, as we read God's word. Starting with just the first four verses this morning of chapter 1, this is God's word to us. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Isaiah tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would, in this short time together, assure us, root us, ground us in your love and the confidence that we can have because of who you are and the gospel of Christ unto us. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit, that you would minister to our spirits, each and every one of us where we are, that as a body of Christ, we might be changed and transformed because you've spoken. Would you remove me and my shaky voice and sick voice so that Christ might be exalted, so that Jesus is experienced in us, that we might be different. Thank you that you're with us. May the words of my mouth meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So many of you know this, if you've been here for some time, that I grew up in the Catholic Church and was baptized, confirmed, went through Eucharist, which in the Catholic Church is the Lord's Supper. And in the Catholic Church, there's a lot of weight placed on the role of Sunday Mass. And for many good reasons, it is. Uh, I can vividly remember feeling internal angst as a little, little guy when I would miss mass, wondering if my sins would be forgiven, wondering that if I were to die today, would my sins still be counted against me? I know that's morbid for a 10-year-old, but I had that much guilt as a 10-year-old. Mass for me was my anchor, it was my confidence, it was my assurance. 
that if I were to die, I would have eternal life. Now, I left the Catholic church in high school and I started going to a Baptist church and I started attending evangelical Christian conferences and convivially remember being asked all the time, do you know that you know that you know that if you were to die today, you would experience eternal life? I mean, that question will haunt you. Do you know that you know that you know? I mean, I wanted to know that I know that I know. So I walked down the aisle who knows how many times to make sure I was a Christian. I prayed the prayer of Jesus coming into my life over and over and over For I had to know internal seriousness about Jesus was my anchor for many years. And if I ever felt unsure about Jesus in my heart, I just prayed for him to come into my life again and again. Isn't it odd that our spirituality, that our Christianity can be counterproductive, producing in us uncertainty, the opposite fruit of that which the gospel produces, certainty and assurance. So I want to point out three things from the first four verses of 1 John this morning that give us certainty as Christians. The first is a historical defense. The second is the experience of life. And the last is a shared joy. Let's look at a historical defense. Look at verse 1. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And that might sound familiar to some of you. It sounds similar to the beginning of John's gospel. John starts his gospel within the beginning. Here in 1 John, he starts with from the beginning. Both are talking about Jesus. Here, not just the word, but the word of life. Jesus from the beginning. He's eternal. He has always been and always will be. And the truth revealed is that the eternal becomes carnal. That the eternal was made flesh and dwelt among us. There were a lot of teachings going on about Jesus in John's day. Gnosticism in particular was in its heyday. Gnosticism is the belief that uh, the flesh is evil. It was the denial of the flesh and the kind of prizing of the spirit. And so there were teachings spreading about Jesus. Teachings like Jesus had a phantom body, not truly in the flesh. Or Jesus had this ability to kind of put on and take off his divinity and humanity. That there was no way the Christ could die. And the way John begins, he says that the truth of Jesus is from the beginning. It is as old as eternity. It's rooted in a history from the beginning. Before we were, Jesus was. The truth of Jesus is not invented. It's not new. It does not change with the times and tide of our culture. It's eternal. I hope that gives you pause if you hear teachings of Jesus in our day or new versions or new takes on Jesus, that you remember that the truth of Christ is a truth as old as eternity. Now, John's writing to Christians who are being opposed for believing this truth of the incarnation, the eternal that became carnal. They're wavering, they're shaky in their confidence. And so John just tells them, hey, you just need to believe more. Just take it on a whim and believe it. No, he doesn't do that. He says, take it by fact. You can take it by fact. Verse 1, we've heard him. We've seen him with our eyes and we've touched him with our hands. John is witnessing to the fact of Jesus. This is like John's deposition, like his witness statement in court. He's saying, here's how you can be certain of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I walked with him. I ate with him. 
I grew weary with him. I saw him deal with the crowds. I saw him touch the leper. I saw him heal the paralyzed man, cast out demons, calm the storm. I saw him executed on a cross, and then I saw him rise three days later. In a criminal case, lawyers know that if you have an eyewitness, you have the upper hand. There's no stronger testimony than having someone testify that they saw what happened and touched what happened. Our assurance and certainty in believing Jesus is grounded in objective certainty. We have the truth of Jesus given to us through eyewitnesses, namely the Word of God, the Scriptures. God the author giving us the truth of who he is through people who were with him. You know, the children's song sung to many children, I still sing it to mine, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. For the Bible tells me so. A song, a simple song, a children's lullaby that we now sing, 150 years old, drives home a profound truth of Jesus who is eternal. We can know God is true because we've been given the truth of who he is from those who heard him, saw him, and touched him. Here's the second reason we can have certainty the experience of life. In this passage, Jesus is not just called the word, like John's gospel, but the word of life. That the life was made manifest, that we proclaim to you eternal life. Jesus doesn't just give life or get life. He is the life, the way, the truth, and the life. And we have by faith in Christ, verse 3, fellowship with him and the Father. Which means by faith in Christ, we become partakers and sharers of his divine life. We become united to Christ. That we now enjoy him and the eternal life that he offers. I think too often we hear eternal life and we think of life after death. But Jesus helps us understand eternal life in John's gospel, chapter 17, verse 3. When he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is, is experienced in the here and the now as much as it is when we die. We are united to Christ, invited to participate in the divine dance of fellowship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. When I was at Auburn University, I was part of a leadership group, and we got our hands on a costume for Auburn's mascot, and Auburn's mascot is Aubie who's on the field with the cheerleaders, and we got our hands on the Aubie suit. So one night, summer night, I put on the Aubie outfit and uh, went to an incoming freshman dorm, and all the freshmen were going nuts because they wanted to hang out with Aubie. Uh, everybody was saying hello, giving high fives. I walked up to the dorm. It erupted. Everybody came out with smiles and with joy because they wanted to be with Aubie. I think that's one way to think about union with Christ, that we are clothed completely in him, that Jesus covers our shame, our sin, our weakness in a very real way, more so than temporary fiction like Aubie. In a, in a way that day, that summer day, I was masquerading false identity, but by faith in Christ, we are in fellowship with him, united to him, alive in him, clothed in all his benefits and in all, all, all his blessings. When God looks at you, he sees Christ. He sees Christ. That's freedom. 
It's love, that's fellowship, and it gives us confidence. Now, experiencing this life of union with Christ is important. We are grounded by objective certainty in the truth, but we can also have subjective certainty, genuine experience as we share in the divine life of Christ. Maybe you saw it coming in, you'll see it going out before and after church, both of our services, we have a lot of children running around our services in this building. Now imagine with me uh, seeing a mother or a father pick up their son or daughter and say, I love you. You know I love you. And then the son and daughter or daughter replies while in their arms, I love you too. I love you too. Now in that moment, was the son or daughter any more legally their child? Nope in the arms or on the ground, son and daughter. But was the son or daughter experientially more their child? You better believe when I hold my son and I wrap him up and I tell him I love him, he's experiencing something that's not just object, objective, but it's subjective for him. Life and, sh- and fellowship with God, union with Christ, makes what is objectively true an experiential reality. Now maybe you're thinking, man, that sure sounds good. But the experience of this life and fellowship and the divine life, it's few and far between for me. So let me read you a a somewhat lengthy quote. I don't normally like to give long quotes because I think they can be confusing, but this one's too good. Hopefully you'll think that. This is from J.I. Packer in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit. This is what he writes. He says, one reason why the experiential reality of perceiving God is unfamiliar country today is that the pace and preoccupations of urbanized, mechanized, collectivized, secularized modern life are such that any sort of inner life is very hard to maintain. To make prayer your life priority, as countless Christians of former days did outside as well as inside the monastery, is stupendously difficult in a world that runs off your feet and will not let you slow down. And if you attempt it, you will certainly seem eccentric to your peers. For nowadays, involvement in a stream of programmed activities is decidedly in, and the older ideal of a quiet, contemplative life is just as decidedly out. That there is a widespread hunger today for more intimacy, warmth, and affection in our fellowship with God is clear. But the concept of Christian life as sanctified rush and bustle still dominates. And as a result, the experiential side of Christian holiness remains very much a closed book. So I've got to ask you, I've got to ask myself, do you take time to stop and to dwell and to meditate and to contemplate and to get alone and to be still and allow the truths of the gospel to rush over you, to allow the spirit of God to meet you and change you? Another thing that John points out that's true of this experience of life, this fellowship with God, is that it's never done completely alone. It's always coupled with fellowship with one another. So we experience this life of Christ, verse 3, so that you too may have fellowship with us. The gospel of Jesus is a reconciliation into a communion with the Father, Son, and Spirit and reconciliation into a community. Christianity is a package deal. You get God you get each other. Can't have one without the other. And the life of Christ is experienced in community. 
becoming a Christian and being a Christian is a grammatical change. It's no longer me, but it's now we. It's no longer I, it's us. And Christ Central Church, we cannot be content as a church if we're not seeing people drawn into fellowship with God for the first time and if we're not seeing fellowship with God uh, happening in all of our lives over and over and over. Nor can we be content if we function as a church, as a superficial social group that hangs out at times or a, a, a kind of social good group that does good in our community, if we're not a church being brought together by spiritual fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. So how can you be certain? There's an internal experience. There's subjective certainty. You know God through prayer, through the word, through silence, but never just alone. Always includes a community, a church, which is why we gather on Sunday. It's why we meet together throughout the week. It's why we take membership in our church seriously. Last point I want to make about certainty and how we can be certain is there's a shared joy. Look at verse 4. And we are writing these things that our joy may be complete. Now, I think the better translation is I'm writing these things that your joy may be complete. In the original language, you can translate it both ways. And so I'm sure John is getting joy from Christians having assurance. So he, he can say, I'm writing these things so that our joy can be complete. But the thrust of the passage, and I think the, the whole letter really is their experience. So I think a better translation is that your joy may be complete. He's concerned about them. I don't know if you noticed, but the, there's no salutation. There's no greeting in this letter like most New Testament letters. John is so quick to jump into their situation their assurance, their experience. And he declares God's aim, God's goal, which is to have joy. That they might have joy as they live in an uncertain world with opposition amongst false teaching. So what is joy? I love how British pastor, theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones describes joy. He, he described it as something that's very deep and profound that affects the entire personality. That it's complete satisfaction, intellectual satisfaction, emotional, and desires all at the same time satisfied. It's also an exaltation. It's a positive celebration and rejoicing. And it's Paul in Philippians 4.4 that you might rejoice always. I don't know about you, but that is convicting to me. We live in a culture where critique is king and I get worn out by my crit criticalness and the criticalness of our culture and I think joy is a positive celebration, a positive rejoicing. Joy is also a strength and a power. It's not flabby. It's not superficial. Someone who's in a state of joy is, in, in a sense, afraid of nothing. The joy of the Lord is my strength, the Scriptures say. What we learn from this passage is that joy is not something you can go pick up when you leave here. It's not something you can work for and achieve. It's for it's something that's given to us as a power greater than us works us over, mainly dwelling in our union with Jesus, contemplating the truths of the gospel. When we do that, when we take the time to stop the rush and the bustle and we sit and we're still and we contemplate, the Spirit of God works us over and gifts us joy. When we contemplate on the incarnation, that the eternal became carnal, when we think that the Son of God had to die to atone for our sins, to bring us into fellowship with him. And then when we think about participating in the divine dance, this 
eternal communion of Father, Son, and Spirit, that we get to be a part of that. Our joy is made complete. And I think the better translation at the end of that is not that your joy may be full, but that your joy may remain full. Not that it only may be or become, but that it may remain. I think that's important because when we have a shared joy with one another, a shared joy from being in fellowship with God in union with Christ, our joy does not come and go with circumstances. It's not mere happiness. It's something that we can have when we worship together and that we can have when we're facing tragedy and suffering. As Christians, we stand in the face of opposition. In a world that is often against the gospel that we proclaim and profess, we can endure hardship and suffering because this is a broken world. But we can have joy. It's the gift of being in fellowship with our God. So as we live in a world that questions absolute authority, questions Jesus, mixes spirituality, we can find ourselves in our own experience unsettled by what we profess to be true, unsettled because of what's happening in our lives, but we can have confidence and certainty because there's a historical defense. It's the offer of experience in life, and there's the gift of shared joy. John's world was not much different than our world. At the time he wrote this letter, the Christians were an outcast minority. But 300 years after writing this letter, Jesus and the gospel would conquer the Roman Empire. Do you believe that the gospel of Jesus is the power of God unto salvation? He gives us assurance and we trust, church, that his gospel will change the world. Amen? Let's pray. God, I ask that you would... Give us an assurance, an assurance that is objective. As we're about to come to this table, the bread broken and the blood shed, the wine and juice that we drink together points us to something greater than how we feel. It, it's truth. At the same time, God, the Spirit of God lives within each of us who, who know you, and the Spirit of God dwells within our community. And, and so we pray we just don't have head knowledge uh, but that it's true, genuine experience in the depths of our souls. I pray that would happen as we come to this table as well. Lord, it is blessed assurance to know that you are faithful. Even when we're faithless, you're faithful. You hold on to your people. Thank you that that's true. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.